everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I'm joined by the ever-snarky Ron Shevlin, Director of Research at Cornerstone Advisors and frequent columnist at Forbes, writing the Forbes FinTech Snark Tank. Cornerstone is a leading research platform focused on financial services, where Ron spends his days advising community banks, mid-sized institutions, and credit unions on strategy, market research, tech, fintech, and more. It's no secret that those institutions are facing major crossroads over the coming years, deciding to build by our partner, keeping up with digitization, and innovating new products. In today's episode, Ron and I discuss how these institutions can fight back, especially through the lens of community and affinity. We also discuss why community banks need to find their bullseye, the tech problems these institutions face, and how Ron is thinking about the neobank space and how the top leaders will play out. We close with what financial institutions can learn from the Grateful Dead. Yes, that Americana jam band. For context, Ron and I, as well as a few fintech folks, including Matt Harris of Bain Capital Ventures and Dustin Kirkland of Apex, are all big dead fans. Ron happened to write an article a while ago on what financial institutions can learn from the Grateful Dead, and it's actually very compelling when he shares it in this episode. We also, of course, have a rapid fire question round for today. Without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Ron. Welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. It's wonderful to have you as a guest today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So I have to say, this is just one of a handful of episodes we've sourced from Twitter, and this one quite publicly, uh, over a tweet I posted over a love of FinTech and the Grateful Dead, of all things. I didn't think there were many of us with these overlapping interests, but the tweet got a lot of good traction. Uh, Listen, you'd be surprised. Uh, Listen, I remember going to shows in the uh, late 80s, in the New York area where, um, and these limos would pull up and these Wall Street guys would be getting out of their limos to see the dead. And I don't know who they were, Ryan, but they literally would have video equipment in the back of their limos that was clearly like, they were like watching the stage. I have no idea how they were hooked up, but I was like, man, who are these guys? So you'd be surprised who's into the Grateful Dead over the years. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised to hear that, you know, kind of the 1980s Wall Street archetype was going to the Grateful Dead. So it'd be Uh kind of a culture clash. Many people who follow fintech might be familiar with you, but for those who are not, can we just get some background on who is Ron Shevlin and maybe up until, you know, you joined Cornerstone? Yeah, so I basically have been a consultant for the past uh, 25, 30 years. I worked for a couple of big consulting firms, uh, KPMG was one of them, then some small consulting firms, a company called Symmetrics in the Boston area, which was uh, doing a good job with the re-engineering days of the 80s. And then back in 97, after being a consultant for 12 years and realizing that, man, I was really bad at it, not going anywhere in consulting, I lucked out, I guess, and found a position with Forrester Research. And that was just the best fit for me. And I basically have been an industry slash technology analyst for the past uh, 23, 24 years. I spent nine years at Forrester. Uh, I left. Um, I had a period of two years where I worked for a big database marketing company and then realized that, you know, having a real job 
sucks. I just don't know how you people do it. Uh, so I needed to get back into the analyst world and hooked up with a firm here in the Boston area called IT Group, which uh, only does financial services, unlike a Forrester or a Gartner. Great place to be. And I spent seven years there. Uh, and then so it'll be six years in May that I joined Cornerstone Advisors, Cornerstone, um, sort of a smallish, mid-sized consulting firm specializing in the mid-sized bank and credit union space. And listen, I've got absolutely nothing against the big banks, uh, not anti-big bank at all, but on a day-to-day basis, working with mid-sized financial institutions is a whole lot easier and a whole lot more fun than dealing with the politics of the big banks. And so they hired me to start a research practice. And basically, I do what your typical Forrester or Gartner analyst does, with one big exception is um, we don't sell subscriptions to our our research, everything's kind of one-off and commissioned. And so I spend my days just working on reports and doing a lot of speaking stuff. And listen, I've been blogging for a long time. And two years ago or so, I got a call from some guy at Forbes and said, hey, you want to be a Forbes contributor? I said, yeah, I want to be a Forbes contributor. So I moved my blog there, renamed it the FinTech Snark Tank. And the rest, as they say, is history. The great title. So going back to Cornerstone, who are your clients exactly and how do they interact with Cornerstone? You said it's not a subscription model. So Cornerstone has two broad sets of clients. On one hand is the consulting side that really works with the mid-sized banks and credit unions. On the research side, my client are, are technology vendors, you know, for big ones like Pfizer, FIS, Jack Henry, mid-sized ones like the digital platform providers like Alchemy and Q2, but uh, we're dealing with a lot of startups these days. And, you know, the, the technology vendor world is, is pretty big, uh, you know, across all the various, uh, you know, functional areas, channels, and so forth. So, uh, you know, my client base is, is very much the vendors. And, you know, what has evolved over the past couple of years is that their marketing efforts have evolved to really being focused on content marketing. You know, the days where you can just sort of, you know, make up stuff and do just feature function marketing is out. And the days where you could go to an analyst firm and pay them to say, oh, XYZ technology company is the best company out there. Nobody buys that kind of stuff. What they want is good content, uh, research that, you know, executives can understand what's coming down the pike from a technology perspective, uh, maybe, you know, how do things compare to what other institutions are doing. So it's a good model. And, you know, I'm getting commissioned to do research to understand the market, what's kind of coming down the pike. My audience for the research are the financial institution executives. That's who I write to, but I'm getting paid by the vendors and the tech vendors to create that content. They get to put it on their website for download and use it as you know ways to generate leads. I get my money up front and then I look good for having written all this uh, really great content. It's a good model, man. It's a good model. <laughs> That's really interesting, Ron. So you know, I'm sure such a big question. So many mid-sized banks especially are trying to understand and solve is how can they survive and how can they come back? Can you just talk a little bit about maybe the two or three biggest challenges these mid-sized banks have faced over the last maybe five to 10 years and what they can do to just you know kind of stave off this onslaught of fintech and the huge advantage that incumbents can have just in their size. Sure. I will boil it down to two things, but before I even do that, I just want to address your terminology, the onslaught of fintech. Because to some extent, yes, there is a competitive aspect to it, but you know what? To a large extent, there's a partnership opportunity. So the term onslaught 
just hits me as maybe we need a better word for it, you know. But here's <laughs> you can tone it down to your, next time. To your, no, 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 never tone it, tone it down. <laughs> but um, here's what I think the two biggest challenges are uh, from that mid-sized bank, and, and you got to throw the credit unions in there as well. Um, number one is purely from a technology perspective, the overwhelming majority, and I would have to say somewhere probably in the 90 to 95% range of banks and credit unions below $100 billion in assets rely on vendor technology. This vendor technology is solid. You know, we're talking uptime and things like that of close to 100% and functionality that meets the functionality that was ever needed three to five years ago. But as many of these mid-sized institutions look to innovate and change uh, their existing platforms, both from a core system perspective, digital platform perspective, ancillary systems perspective, become you know, the drag on innovation, the inability to quickly innovate using those platforms, the inability to easily integrate new systems, applications, capabilities, it's truly one of the biggest barriers they have to innovation. So that's one huge challenge is the technology side. The other thing is is really much more societal and behavioral and much more from a consumer aspect. And here's how I would boil it down, Ryan. I think the challenge comes down to the, I can't call it the effect, but at least my assertion that the notion of community from a banking perspective is either changing rapidly or has already changed away from community as a geographic construct to community as an affinity construct. If you look at what's going on in the challenger bank market, you know, some of them have not necessarily gained a lot of traction just yet. But if you look at a lot of the new players in the market, like First Boulevard uh, out of Kansas City, Daylight, company called Panacea, Joust, uh, Purple, they're all focused on relatively narrow niches of the market. You know, aspiration focuses on environmentally conscious consumers, daylight on LGBT, First Boulevard on, on Black Americans. You know, it's the segment. It's that's their community. And it's not a geographic thing. And for many of these challenger banks coming into the market, there is no geographic boundaries on, on them. And so, you know, they're going after and, you know, chipping away at the customer base of everyone in the country. Right. And so it's, you know, it's funny, a couple of years ago, a colleague of mine was at a strategic planning meeting with the bank and they were talking about the mortgage market. And he asked them, you know, to what extent do you see rocket mortgage in your market? And they said, well, we don't see them at all in our market. And I was like, of course you don't see them in your market, but they're doing $90 billion a year in mortgages, <laughs> you know, and that's, you're, you're a pimple on, on the butt of, of rocket mortgage. And so similar situation here, no community bank is going to say, oh yeah, you know, First Boulevard or, or Daylight's a huge <laughs> threat to us. But when you start adding up, it's the death by a thousand cuts. But the thing that really, you know, I think you have to put the point on is that, Community banks see themselves as bankers to their community, and they define community from a geographic perspective. And that's going to be the the noose that hangs them if they don't, you know, if, if A, their community isn't large enough to sustain growth, but they're going to get chipped away by new players who redefine what community means. Right. That That's really insightful, Ron. I definitely agree. 
you know, the, I think the biggest trend recently, as you mentioned, is almost this just rush toward affinity and personal finance, investing, wealth management, value-driven investing, and now even multiplayer fintech. So if your community bank and so much of your community feel is, you know, based on geolocation, unfortunately, my generation is getting more and more mobile and now adding COVID, it's only increasing. How can community banks and similar institutions fight back on this trend while doubling down on technology? So listen, they're all going to have to double down on technology, but in and of itself, that's not kind of the answer. The answer is much more business-oriented and strategic-oriented, which is really figuring out what are we good at, why do we win business when we win, who do we really serve well, and then saying, well, how do we take this on the road kind of a thing. Give you a good example of this is uh, I think it was River Valley Bank up in Wisconsin or Minnesota. I, I should know that, but uh, I can only hope that they're not watching. Uh, and she, they, they might, but they, you know, understood this. They, they had a good business in doing RV loans, and because it was in, in the area where there was a lot of demand for RV loans. But you know what? And this was well before the pandemic, by the way, when demand for RVs and so forth really took off, but they had the right strategic angle. They said, look, we're really good at doing this. How do we expand our geographic focus to take this capability and kind of reinvented themselves as an incredible bank? Now, they still do a lot of other stuff other than RV loans, but that's the hook. I'll give you a great example. And they don't even think of their business this way, but USAA, amazing organization in financial services, and at the center of their bullseye are active deployed military members. And they designed their whole business around serving right. active deployed military member. Now, reality is, is that that's probably a relatively small percentage of their overall base of, of members or customers at any given point in time. But here's the thing, by being able to serve that unique niche of consumers better than almost everybody else, and Navy Federal Credit Union will argue with me about that, of course, but that's okay, then they're still able to serve the next ring in the bullseye, which are active non-deployed military members, as well as, remember, at some point, those active deployed military members in the bullseye are becoming active non-deployed, and then we go to the next outer ring of the strategy, which are non-active non-deployed military members, and then beyond that are family members of those. Who, so by being able to focus on the core of that center of the bullseye, you've got a strategic proposition that says, you know, here's who we're really going after. Now that market in the core is probably not big enough to sustain your growth, but you're still going to get a lot of other customers and members who are going to come in from the outer rings of the bullseye because you perfectly serve their needs, even though you're focusing on the needs of the center of the bullseye. And so that's what a lot of community banks need to really do from a strategic perspective is to construct the bullseye because they don't have it today and really understand who's at the center, who are in the outer rings, what are the unique needs. You know, too much of the problem has been that they come to market, and this is historic, not just in financial services, but probably lots of companies. They start with the definition of the product versus the definition of the customer. Hey, how do we build this product? And then they're like, okay, we got a great product. How do we find customers who want it? You know, not necessarily a bad approach, but, you know, if you're going to be, if, if that's the only product you ever, you know, want to sell, but if you're really going to be a, you know, financial services provider, then like these niche companies that are coming in, 
you got to define who you're really serving and what those needs are. Now, if you are a community bank and you've got, let's say you're out in San Francisco where there is a large LGBT population, are you going to compete with Daylight or do you want to partner with them? That's what I said, you know, why the onslaught is not necessarily about you. How do we fight these guys off? How do we partner with them to take the ability that, because the upstarts need scale. And that's right. one thing that the existing players have. So, you know, it's a funny tightrope and balance between the competition versus uh, partnership aspect. But there's, you know, plenty of opportunities on both sides of the coin there. So going to neobanks, you released an article recently on your Forbes fintech snark tank on the multitude of players, you know, all of their incredible growth, especially Chime, where you point out their ability to compound growth at already enormous customer bases. How are you looking at this challenger bank space and how do you see them playing out over the next few years since I think it's becoming clear that it's not a winner-take-all scenario? Well, number one, it's definitely not winner-take-all. And one of the reasons that I'll stick by that assertion is that one of the, the things that has really changed from the consumer side over the past 10 to 20 years is that we used to be in a situation where we had one checking account. It was the primary, we couldn't even call it primary account because we only had one account and it generally was with the company we thought of as our primary bank. Uh, and maybe we had a you know primary investment provider, probably had a primary insurance provider, but primary bank was the company we had our checking account with. 36% of Americans now have more than one checking account. 8% have three or more. And I think that's continuing to grow. The numbers are actually even higher, of course, for millennials and, and Gen Zers. It's us baby boomers that are bringing down those numbers for sure, because we're still out there. Sorry, guys, we are out there and we're in big numbers and we still have, <laughs> we still have money. We have not <laughs> sent it over to you guys yet. So um, as my mother says, she says, I'm, always says, I'm taking it with me, so don't count on it. Um, so, yeah, we've got multiple accounts now, and that's the dynamic that makes this not a winner-take-all market. Give me another quick anecdote on this. A couple of months ago, some guy I know in the UK tweeted that Revolut was potentially looking to get a, a state charter in California. And I was wondering why California. Right. So as you probably have seen in my tweets, I can get a little snarky at times. And I commented that, well, maybe it's because the one guy out of the 3,000 who responded to my consumer survey who said he had an account Revolut lives in California. That was true, by the way. The survey of 3,000 people, one person said he had a Revolut account, and that person lived in California. Wow. Well, I got a response to that tweet from a senior executive at a bank in Wisconsin, not the bank I was referring to before. Big bank, over you know, pretty good size. If I tell you the number, it'd be easy to figure out who it was. And she said, hey, I have a Revolut account. And so I responded, oh, does your boss know that you're banking with a bank that isn't the bank where you work? And she said, ah, <laughs> it's a second account. I use them for international money transfers. It is so easy. Wow. And there you go, Roy. There it is. There it is. Secondary account, people using it for one purpose, one reason to do international money transfers. You know, the ability to easily transfer money across accounts has been both the, the benefit and bane of everybody in the space. And, and that's what's kind of it. So, you know, and now you look at what uh, I, I think what Plaid is doing with its deposit switch. Uh, oh, yeah. you, know, it, it, you know, if you're getting paid $5,000 a month, 
And you can basically split that 5,000, do direct deposit into five different places. Well, imagine the opportunities that, first of all, you're, you're putting the money everywhere you want it to be relatively easily. Uh, you know, there's a new player that's going to announce next week that, uh, so I can't really mention any names or anything, but they're going to be offering a pretty damn good rate on savings with the stipulation that you've got to do direct deposit of at least $1,000. So great. If you've got $5,000 coming in a month, I mean, yeah, $5,000 coming in a month and you could put a thousand of that and a thousand into something else. Maybe you want to put it directly into your Robinhood account. God, I hope not. And, you know, <laughs> another couple thousand into your, you know, Chime account and then a thousand into your Bank of America account. Man, how easy is it? You don't even have to do it. And you may even be able to do direct deposit to to put some money directly in your Starbucks account without even having to move it out of your your bank account anymore. So that easy money movement, you know, has created this situation where, you know, we're not going to see a winner take all because, you know, different players are going to have different strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, even in the numbers that I published this week, you know, I said Chime had more than 12 million customers. Of the 12 million customers, only two-thirds, or that's probably a pretty good number maybe, are primary customers. That is, they each said that Chime was their primary checking account and bank. But even among those, Ryan, only half said that the Chime debit card was their primary payment mechanism. So what are they doing? They're putting their direct deposit into Chime so they can get two-day early access to the money. And then that money's going somewhere else because half of them aren't even using the Chime debit card as their primary card. So, you know, the old days and the old advertising of, you know, make it easy your financial life. Get all your accounts with one company. First of all, it was never true even back then. And now there's just no way people are going to do that. It's just too easy you know, and now, you know, with better aggregation tools and integration tools, it's just not that hard anymore to manage 10 different relationships. People don't have to give up anything in order to have, you know, an easy place to put it to, to access their money. So, yeah, we're not going to see a one size fits all in a winner take all game in the neobank space. Yeah, I'm a perfect use case here. I mean, some of these apps were for research, but for context, I think I had about 19, 20 fintech apps on my phone this last year, you know, all the challengers and investing apps. And I remember when I was working before this, I could only send my money to, I think, my core banking account. Then I had to, you know, allocate my money the day after my check came to a brokerage, a savings account, investing app, et cetera, wait for it, you know, a few days for it to clear and then act on it. I'm also a big credit card points person, and they always have direct deposit bonuses that I'm trying to take advantage of. I mean, for the rest of people, you know, the ability to specialize across multiple platforms, Revolut, as you mentioned, for transfers, a certain brokerage for zero commissions, Yoda or prize pool for gamified savings, Marcus, it's really powerful. And I, I just think the consumer wins in the end, which is what we can all hope for. So final question here, Ron, we are both big Grateful Dead fans, as is Matt Harris of Bain Capital Ventures and Dustin Kirkland, the chief product officer at Apex. You wrote a piece a while ago titled, I think, What Community Banks Can Learn from the Grateful Dead. Please, for our listeners, lay this out. Okay, listen, there are some quick story. Uh, 
like 25 years ago at this point. What is it? No, no, maybe not that quite long ago. But good 20 years ago, I wrote a piece while I was at Forrester, a short little thing called What Banks Could Learn from the Grateful Dead. And it was kind of on a dare. I had a colleague who said, I dare you to work Grateful Dead into a, you know, something that we actually publish. And at the time, we, we published two different types of things, long, serious reports, and then short, like, brief types of things, you know, three to four mm-hmm. pages. And, you know, I was actually really serious, Ryan, about what banks could learn from the Grateful Dead, because there were three things that Jerry would do if he were running a bank, and really the three things to learn from the Grateful Dead. And number one is you have to question your, your business model. You know, back in the mid-60s, when the Grateful Dead got started, the prevalent business model in music was you, you, you made your money by selling records. You know, you made an album, the record label paid for you to do that, and obviously reaped the majority of the benefit of those album sales. But then you went on tour to support the album sale. Now, the Grateful Dead discovered kind of early on in their history that they weren't really good and didn't like making albums. And so their only path to success was getting out on the road and doing concerts. Now, you think about it, they were like in the entertainment industry, the first to really understand it was all about the experience economy because, you know, they'd play for, you know, four hours at a time. And the other really amazingly lucky decision they made was they let their fans record their their concerts. Nobody else would do that because they would have seen that as cannibalizing album sales. But right. what it did was it grew the audience base and it increased engagement. And so, you know, it was a, a bit accidental, but number one was questioning the prevalent business model of the day and reinventing it. And banks need to do that today. Number two, I don't think they get nearly enough credit for how innovative they were from a technology perspective. You know, for those of us who love, absolutely love the 1973 to 1975 period of the dead, that was the the years that they had the big honking sound system that actually, you know, didn't always work. But it was the technological innovation and experimentation they did. Uh, you know, the musical instrument firm Alembic came out of a lot of work that Phil Lesh, the bass player, did, um, and, and the other, you, you know, uh, you know, support folks with the Grateful Dead. So the technology experimentation, another big lesson learned. And then number three, hey, this is the key. It goes back to community, and you know this. <laughs> you know, the Grateful Dead community of deadheads, you know, helps sustain you know, help sustain the growth of that and then created new revenue opportunities from a merchandising perspective. But, you know, the community support and engagement they got was absolutely key. So business model, technology, and community, three great lessons, you know, that come out of uh, the Grateful Dead for banks. And I'll argue with anybody that that's as relevant as as anything uh, that it was then and it is today. I have to say, we'll have a lot of people that see the question and think that the answer is going to be nonsense, but that was about as strong of an answer as I could ever imagine for what banks could learn from the Grateful Dead. That was great. And yeah, they, they did really innovate a lot. And not to mention the gig economy that they created in the lot. I know lots of distant relatives and older friends that toured along with them and carried them and uh, followed them around and made a living off of it. So, Ron, in closing, you've entered the final round of the episode, which is the rapid fire round. We've got about eight to 10 questions, max, you know, 10 seconds each response. Are you ready? All right. All right. First one, 
fintech company you would love to invest in, an early stage and a later stage? Oh, I can't say that. Uh, if I tell you that and then I write about them, then uh, I may have already invested in it and I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, but, but, okay, I'll, I'll still go there. I'll still go there. Okay. There are two. <laughs> I'm not sure which ones. Uh, but listen, I love what Syncterra and Move are both doing. And I think that's, mm. I think FinTech infrastructure is the place to be. Got it. All right. How about first Neobank with a successful exit? I don't know, because I think some of them are just getting too overpriced, like Chime. And mm. I think a lot of the others are just just too far down the, the line, you know? Yeah. I mean, do you point to like a simple and say that they had a successful exit, you know, eight years ago at $118 million yeah, or whatever it was? Oh, man, you're asking tough questions. I hope <laughs> they get a little easier as we get on. Oh, here. they will. Who is your fintech hero? Uh, so I have a couple of fintech heroes for sure. And, and one of them is Brett King, who has been thought leader and, and has maintained that thought leadership position for 10 years. And my other fintech hero is Jim Maroos, who, you know, basically is such an inspiration. I mean, he literally reinvented himself in his career at a, and I won't say at what age and has, you know, still going strong and definitely is a huge inspiration to me. All right. So Cornerstone recently hired Alex Johnson. What are you most excited about that he'll bring to the table? I see Alex as the guy taking over my job because uh, he'll be 10 times better at it than I will. He brings, from, from my perspective, just a better understanding of the technology that's going on and, and has the strong thought leadership to match it. You don't find that in a lot of people. Not to mention, he writes. And that's a piece of you know, what we do that's just so right. hard. I mean, I work with a lot of smart people who know the technology, know the stuff, but when they sit down to write, it's like they might as well just be beating their heads against the wall. <laughs> so, you know, Alex's capability to understand the technology, have the thought leadership chops and be able to write, uh, I'm going to be reporting to him in no time. Awesome. All right. How about thoughts on cryptocurrency? Short answer. Huge thing that's going to happen, both from a investing and payment perspective. I don't know that will necessarily, you know, will replace fiat currencies, but I definitely think, you know, we'll see digital currency, you know, as a as a government uh, managed thing. Maybe it'll take ten years, but next ten years going to be a rocket ship ride from both an investment and a payments perspective. All right, so three left. Who would you like to see next on Wharton FinTech's podcast? I'd love for you to talk to uh, the founders of First Boulevard, Donald Hawkins and Asia Bradley. Um, they're just doing some really cool stuff. And as people, they're going like to <laughs> like this session up. <laughs> awesome. All right, best dead show that you went to. Oh, my gosh. So there's a couple of memorable ones. One for sure was the June 1980 in Boulder, Colorado, you know, sleeping out in the car the night before, waking up, seeing the Shawanga Mountains in front of me, and then going to see the dead at uh, Folsom Field, and I'd never been out in the West Coast before. So that was definitely one that comes to mind, although the song set itself wasn't that, that good, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Love it. I only have these Dead & Co. knockoff shows at City Field to, to reminisce on. All right, well, Ron... I want to thank you again for coming on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. This was an awesome episode. I'm really excited to get this one out to our listeners. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. 
And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.